The Story of Psychology, with your host, Professor Todd, based on the work of Dr. C. George Bore. Part 3, The 1800s, The Beginnings of Psychology. Psychology would not have formed without a shift from philosophical speculation about the nature of the mind and of consciousness to a systematic empirical study of the brain and nervous system. Even astronomers of the day had slight disagreements in their measurements that were caused by individual differences in their mental processes while making observations. For instance, the Reverend Neville Maskelyne, 1732-1811, was England's royal astronomer. In 1795, Maskelyne had a problem with his assistant, David Kennebrook. While working with Kennebrook, Maskelyne noticed that his assistant recorded slower times than his own for a star to travel from one point to another. And so... He did what self-important individuals often do when an employee disagrees. He fired Kennebrook. Later, however, he rethought the incident. He concluded that the differences in observation were likely due to individual differences between the two men's perception, differences that were likely not under personal control. He did not, however, rehire Kennebrook. But science was being forced to study sensation and perception, and a scientific psychology was only a short step away. Marshall Hall, 1790 to 1857, was an English physician and physiologist and a pioneer in reflex behavior. Because of research on the brain and nervous system, physicians recognized that nerves caused movement in the body and that nerves all connected to the spinal cord and then to the brain. Therefore, physical and mental functioning are situated in the brain. However, the localization of a given function within a specific region of the brain is exceedingly difficult. Remembering the research on stimulating frog legs, which would twitch when their nerves were touched with an electrostatically charged scalpel, even though those legs were no longer attached to their original owner, Marshall Hall attempted to make a distinction between voluntary and involuntary movement. Hall discovered that decapitated animals respond to, quote, appropriate forms of stimulation, end quote. As an aside, how you would appropriately stimulate a decapitated animal is a bit beyond me, but apparently it had to do with touching specific nerves and observing a predictable response. Now, if you would like to experience the power of electricity over the nervous system, I invite you to do your own experimentation by touching an electric fence. Now, depending upon where you live, this may be more or less difficult. So I recommend you're traveling to a rural area in middle America, perhaps a farm with a small herd of cattle. Cattle owners 
often keep cows corralled in a large field by lining the perimeter of the field with a thin metal wire, often alongside the barbed wire fence. Now, the ends of the wire are attached to car batteries or a transformer that can deliver an unpleasant but physically harmless shock. And the cows quickly learn to avoid the fence line and instead to stay inside the field. Now, of course, most cows weigh over a thousand pounds and have a hide that can be an inch thick or more. If, however, you are a thin-skinned, unwary, teenaged boy, like I was, you may stumble across an electric cow fence and, thinking that it was turned off, because your so-called friends who live on the farm told you that it was turned off, you may boldly touch said electric fence. And if you did so, you would discover the power that electricity has over your nervous system. Electrical workers call it being frozen on the wire. Your entire body can be paralyzed. Your brain still works, or at least works well enough to tell the rest of your body, this hurts, get away! But other parts of your body, particularly the part that you are using to touch the wire, are unable to respond. In my case, I still had enough ability to let my legs relax and collapse under me, pulling me from the wire. Now, the power of electricity can overpower or override the electrical function of your nervous system, making your muscles unable to respond. Or perhaps more accurately, your muscles respond to the external electrical stimulation rather than to the electrophysiology of your nervous system that typically causes them to respond. So incidentally, if you ever have reason to touch an electric fence, and I don't know why you would, be sure to touch it with the back of your hand. Touching it with your fingers or your palm will cause the muscles in your hand to contract, forcing you to grab the wire and making it more difficult to escape. Or you can do as my so-called friends did and convince someone else to touch the wire. But back to our story about Marshall Hall. Based on his electrical stimulation of the brain, Hall concluded that different parts of the brain and nervous system govern various levels of behavior. For instance, he determined that the cerebrum controls voluntary movement. The spinal cord is responsible for reflex movement. The medulla at the base of the brain regulates respiratory movement. And the direct stimulation of the muscle clature results in involuntary movement. Hall's other great contribution was his theory of reflex action, which he published in the book on the reflex function of the medulla oblongata and the medulla spinalis in 1832. Hall wrote that the spinal cord comprises a chain of units that function as independent reflex arcs. Their activity integrates sensory and motor nerves at every segment along the spinal cord. The reflex arcs interact to coordinate movement, such as walking or to pick up a ball. The nervous system has both a sensory and a motor component. And those components are coordinated through reflex arcs, allowing for complex movement and coordinated sensory behaviors. The reflex arc function excited great attention in Europe, 
and became the basis for later research by Ivan Pavlov. Among Hall's other important contributions, he developed a method of resuscitation of drowned people by freeing their airway and providing immediate ventilation. This artificial respiration went on to save many lives. Marshall Hall died at Brighton of a throat infection, aggravated by lecturing, on August 11, 1857. Franz Joseph Gall, 1758-1828, was a German neuroanatomist and physiologist who held revolutionary ideas about brain function, i.e. that different regions of the brain control different functions in the body. As part of his research, Gall confirmed the existence of the brain white matter and gray matter, he confirmed that the nerve fibers from each side of the brain go to opposite sides of the spinal column. And he confirmed that there are fibers connecting the two hemispheres of the brain, called the corpus callosum. Because regions of the brain control specific functions, Gall naturally began to inquire what the size and shape of the brain reveal about certain brain faculties. In animals, for instance, Species with larger brains were more intelligent. Certainly the same observation must hold true for the human brain. Perhaps regions of the brain that were larger could indicate increased capacity within that region. In human beings during gestation, the fetal skull is soft, and so enlargements in brain tissue could easily deform the skull those enlargements would press out on certain regions of the skull. And once the skull table ossified in adulthood, the bumps and contours of the skull should reveal something about the underlying brain anatomy. Using a clinical method to map the brain, Franz Joseph Gall invented cranioscopy, a method to determine the personality and development of mental and moral faculties on the basis of the external shape of the skull. Although it would become very popular, not everyone was as enthusiastic about Gaul's cranioscopy. The Roman Catholic Church, for instance, took exception, saying that the mind, created by God, should not have a physical seat in the brain matter. This was an expression of the Neoplatonic dualism that was part of church theology at the time. And established science also criticized Gaul's ideas for his lack of scientific proof for his theory. On the other hand, the ruling class in England used cranioscopy to justify the supposed inferiority of its colonial subjects. Cranioscopy became phrenology the science of, or perhaps the profitable business of, reading the bumps on the head. Phrenology began as a scientific pursuit, but it quickly became the business of charlatans. The logic underlying phrenology was circular. A bump on one area of the head predicted criminality, because the individual was already known to be a criminal. 
although Franz Joseph Gall was originally respected as a scientist, as the result of phrenology, his reputation shifted to that of being a quack and a suspected fraud. His scientific fall was brought on by the work of a French physician, Pierre Florenz. Pierre Florence, 1794-1867, was a professor of natural history in Paris, and he extended the research begun by Marshall Hall, and also discredited the work of phrenology. Pierre Florence was asked by the Academy of Sciences in Paris, themselves acting on the order of the Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte, to solve the matter raised by the Austrian physician Franz Joseph Gall about the differing parts of the brain having different functions. Gall's work was originally pioneering, but Gall did not use a proper scientific methodology, and his theory eventually degenerated into disrepute. Florent's careful observations of the brain and skull revealed that, quote, the shape of the skull did not match the contours of the underlying brain tissue, end quote. And this completely undermined Gall's theory. Pierre Florenz used a technique for studying the brain that, while accepted at the time, is rather gruesome and has long since been abandoned. The technique is called extirpation, or ablation, and it is, quote, a technique for determining the function of a given part of an animal's brain by removing it or destroying it and observing the resulting behavior changes. Florenz would create localized lesions on the brains of living rabbits and pigeons and then carefully observe the effects. Using this technique, he was able to determine what specific functions reside in what regions of the brain. Florence showed that the cerebral hemispheres control perception, motor ability, and judgment. The midbrain is responsible for visual and auditory reflexes. The cerebellum controls equilibrium and motor coordination. Destruction of the brainstem, the medulla oblongata, causes death. Pierre Florenz was unable, however, to find specific regions for memory and cognition, perhaps owing to the fact that pigeons have very primitive cortices. We can see analogs to Florenz's work in research on stroke victims. Stroke damage in a specific region of the brain causes a predictable change in body function. Observing what functions have been affected following a stroke also indicates in what region of the brain the stroke occurred. Finally, Florenz was also a pioneer in work on anesthesia. He first introduced the anesthetic effects of chloroform on animals in 1847. Phineas Gage, 1823 to 1860, 
was not a physician or a psychologist, but a railroad worker. And yet Phineas Gage made a tremendous contribution to the study of psychology. Gage was, in fact, a railroad gang foreman. On September 13, 1848, he was working with his crew to blast rock to make way for a rail line near Cavendish, Vermont. Workers would drill holes into the rock and then place charges into those holes, tamping them down with long, heavy metal rods. The resulting explosion could dislodge thousands of pounds of rock in short order. Gage was responsible for adding blasting powder and sand to the hole, placing a fuse, and then compacting the charge into the hole using a tamping iron. On this fateful September day, around 4.30 in the afternoon, something went horribly wrong, and an explosion sent that tamping rod through the frontal lobe of Phineas Gage's brain. According to contemporary accounts, quote, the powder exploded, carrying an instrument through his head an inch and a fourth in diameter and three feet and seven inches in length, which he was using at the time. The iron entered on the side of his face, passing back of the left eye and out the top of his head. But Gage did not die instantly. After the explosion, he picked himself up and was assisted by his fellow workers. Although he insisted that the rod had gone through his head, no one believed it at first. But the wounds were obvious that the rod did, in fact, pass through. The first physician to arrive on the scene was Dr. Edward H. Williams. Dr. Williams records, quote, I first noticed the wound upon the head before I alighted from my carriage, the pulsations of the brain being very distinct. Mr. Gage, during the time I was examining this wound, was relating the manner in which he was injured to the bystanders. I did not believe Mr. Gage's statement at the time, but thought he was deceived. Mr. Gage persisted in saying that the bar went through his head. Mr. Gage got up, and vomited. The effort of vomiting pressed out about half a teacup full of the brain, which fell upon the floor. End quote. However, the extent of Phineas Gage's injuries would only become obvious later. The injury to his frontal lobe radically changed his mind. Previously known to be a gentle, polite, and pious man, after his injury, Phineas Gage became fitful, irreverent, known to engage in profanity, impatient, obstinate, and obnoxious. He was treated by Dr. John Martin Harlow, who wrote about his personality change. No longer able to work on the railroad, Phineas Gage was reduced to displaying himself at the Barnum Circus along with his tamping rod. Phineas Gage died in February 1860, about 12 years after the accident. He was buried in San Francisco, California. In 1866, Dr. Harlow persuaded Gage's family to have his remains disinterred, at which point his skull was removed and his remains reburied. Phineas Gage's skull, along with his tamping iron, 
are on display at Harvard Medical School's Warren Anatomical Museum. 